You are now listening to the October 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. Hello, this is Nicole with Let's Read the Bible. Jews during Jesus' time, especially Pharisees, observed the laws of Moses very strictly. And to observe these laws even better, they created the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders are additional rules and regulations on top of the laws so that they will not break the original laws. For example, the law said that if someone were to be punished physically, it could not be more than 40 lashes. So, to prevent someone from breaking the law by miscounting and going over 40, they established an additional law to limit the number of lashes to 39. Like this, Pharisees tried their best to observe the laws so they can become righteous. They washed their hands all the time before eating food to not defile inside of their bodies. So to them, Jesus and his disciples who ate food without washing their hands were people who were defiling inside of their bodies. And so, they judged Jesus and his disciples by their own standard of righteousness. To them, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 11. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. That is right. It is not the food going into the mouth that defiles people, but rather, it is what comes out of the mouth that comes from the heart of man that is defiled. There is a verse in Proverbs chapter 4, which we will read today, that we must keep in our hearts. It is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We have a lot of things that we must take care of. We have to keep our health and keep ourselves safe. We also should keep our integrity and possession safe. We do our best to secure all that we have. But are we ensuring that we do our best to keep our hearts pure? We must look at ourselves if we are doing our best to keep our hearts just as we are doing our best to keep our health, possessions, and integrity. The Bible tells us to keep our hearts with all vigilance because the springs of life come from it. Our actions are determined by our heart's decisions. Our heart will decide what to carry out in actions. Are you keeping your hearts pure? I hope we will always be able to keep our hearts clean with all vigilance. 
Let's read Proverbs chapter four, verses one to twenty-seven together. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts; do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me. Let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget, and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this: get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the ears of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let go. Guard her, for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked, and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight, and keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward, and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left; turn your foot away from evil. We just read Proverbs chapter four, verses one to twenty-seven from the Bible together.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is the truth and suffering. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Well, if you are new with us, we are in a series called The Truth Will Set You Free. Now, when I first started this sermon series, I said that I think this is desperately needed, and here's why. Because we are living in a day and age where the truth is being trampled underfoot. It really is. There's no denying it. Now, the fact of the matter is, the truth has always been trampled underfoot. Um, when the Bible says that Jesus, when he came into the world, the world loved the darkness. They hated the light that Christ brought. Fallen man hates the truth and he hates the light. And so it's always been trampled underfoot. What's interesting about where we are right now is we are at a place where the truth is being trampled underfoot in a way that is absolutely obvious to all of us. Amen? Uh, maybe 10 years ago, we would go, yeah, the truth is being trampled underfoot, but it was harder to distinguish where that was happening sometimes. Well, it's not so hard anymore to distinguish. It's, it's so obvious. It is everywhere. Now, there is a problem. And the problem is this. When the truth is trampled underfoot, so too are the people advocating for that truth and standing on that truth. In other words, it's not just the message, but it is often the messenger that is trampled underfoot. 
If you are somebody that holds a biblical worldview, then you are somebody that falls into this category. You do. You stand on the truth. You advocate for the truth. And because of this, you have probably experienced persecution. You too are being trampled underfoot. The church today is being trampled underfoot. It has gotten so bad that here in the United States, Christianity in some circles is now considered a religion of hate. Who would have ever thought that we've gotten to the point in this country where people would say Christianity is a religion of hate? Even 10 years ago, that was really not on the table. But it is not only on the table, it is being pushed and advocated by many people. But here's the kicker. Such hostility towards those of us that are Christians isn't just happening out there in the public square. It's happening within our own inner circles, whether it be our friends, our family, our places of work. If you're a Christian standing on the truth, you have probably have felt some hostility even in your inner circle. Um, I've talked to, and this, this surprises many people about this church. Um, we have an older congregation, especially in the first two services, And a lot of people think, well, that older congregation, they're just stuck in their ways and they're not understanding, but they're incredibly understanding. They really are. And many of them have children and grandchildren who have been swept up into things that are false, and they're not condemning their children and grandchildren. They just pray for them and they love them. But in many cases, the grandparents are feeling the sting of children and grandchildren, even great-grandchildren, who don't want anything to do with grandma and grandpa because they're standing on the truth. And they're not standing on the truth in a belligerent way. They're standing on the truth in a loving way. But grandma and grandpa are being even excommunicated you know, from the family. So that's how close it can get to home. It's very heartbreaking. Is it possible that those of us that advocate for the truth, that when we speak it, that we could be arrested in this country before too long? I don't know. I know as a pastor, somebody who preaches, I wonder if there's going to come a point with where I can't say things from the pulpit. But trust me, if we get to that point, it's going to affect you too. Because if something becomes illegal to, to say here, it's going to be illegal to say out there. And like I said, if I get arrested, I hope you're in the cell next to me because we're going to have a good time, right? Wherever we are, there's going to be a church in that jail. If we are in there together, I hope I, I, yeah, I go, hey, who are you? And you go, hey, Bill, it's me. And I'm like, oh, well, that'll be great. Let's have, we're going to have fun. Now, here's the point. Um, I think the pressure that the church is feeling today, that Christians are feeling today, hasn't been felt probably since World War II. The Christians living in World War II during that time, especially in Europe, were under great pressure uh, to cave, to bend, and to, um, to get with the program. And since World War II, I think we've lived in an amazing time of prosperity and simplicity and ease for the Christian church, not only here in America, but really, literally around the world. Not all around the world, obviously. China and other places, it's been very hard to be a Christian. But I think we are at a time in church history right now where the church uh, is feeling pressure like we haven't felt before. Why is that important? Here's why it's important, because if we are not prepared to navigate the persecution and the hostility that we're feeling, it will be easy for the enemy to enslave us to confusion, frustration, hopelessness, and despair, anger, and anxiety at this time. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. If he can enslave us, and you go, well, I don't want to be enslaved to anything. I don't think I'm enslaved to anything. Well, let me tell you, we, the church, can become enslaved. When persecution comes, if we do not navigate it properly, the enemy will step in, and he will have us enslaved to fear, and we will be looking at everything that is happening from the wrong perspective. So what perspective should we be looking at it from? Well, today we're going to be looking at a passage that addresses this very issue. So church, it's my honor to take you to the Word of God today. We will be in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and we'll go through verse 19. Again, hear the word of God this morning. Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. And I want you to note that, to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen, church. Hear the word of God this morning. So Peter, he opens up this section of scripture by reminding the Christians living in the first century that something that we in the 21st century cannot lose sight of, and that is this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised when you're persecuted. Don't be surprised when hostility comes knocking at your door or is already inside your house with your own family members. Remember what Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I will set father against son and so on and so forth. Um, the, living the Christian life will cause division because if you're a Christian, you're going to be standing on the truth. And so he opens up and he says, do not be surprised if this happens to you. That word surprise, it means don't consider it a novelty. It shouldn't be a novelty to you. It's not, shouldn't be out of the ordinary to you and me who are Christians. If we're faithfully standing on the truth, we should get regular and consistent hostility because fallen man hates the truth. He hates the light. He loves the darkness. As a matter of fact, many Christians living in this country, and in really honestly, including myself, I'm surprised. I have been caught off guard at how quickly things have turned on those of us who are Christians in this country. Would, would you guys agree with me on that? Because it was just 10 years ago, even five or 10 years ago, where being a Christian, it wasn't very costly. It was kind of like, yeah, I'm a Christian. But now, it, it, I'm not saying it's like we're, we're experiencing massive suffering, but being a Christian now, you have a bullseye on your back that you didn't even have five or 10 years ago. And it has surprised me to a certain degree when it, when it really shouldn't. What should surprise us is that the tide hasn't turned against us sooner than this. Jesus himself told his disciples just how much the world was going to hate them. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And of course, who can forget what Paul told Timothy? He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Folks, what that means, it's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Hostility and persecution is going to come knocking at your door. Christ is the very embodiment of truth, right? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If they trample Jesus underfoot, the very embodiment of truth, what are they going to do for us, to us, those of us who stand on the truth and who proclaim Christ as the true savior of the world? As a matter of fact, you know what should concern you? What should concern you is if you're never persecuted. And here's one reason why. Do you know who in the Bible, the people in the Bible who were never persecuted? The people in the Bible that were never persecuted were the false prophets. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did the false prophets. You know, there's many Christians that are going, well, we need to get the world to like us because they're kind of starting to speak bad of us. That's good. If the world is speaking well of the church, something is wrong. Either we're not communicating the truth in a way that is accurate and true or something's amiss. But if people are speaking well of us all the time, there's a problem. Because that's how the false prophets were treated. They were always giving people what, saying what people wanted to say, itching the ears of people. Now, here's the reason you don't ever want to get, be surprised at persecution. Because Peter says, listen, don't be surprised. Don't consider it a novelty. Here's why. When we don't expect it is when we get caught off guard. And when we get caught off guard, that's when Satan's going to enslave us, right? We're going to get caught off guard and our hearts are going to become filled with anxiety and worry and a whole bunch of other things. And we're going to go, oh my gosh, I didn't. What's this persecution? What's this hostility? And oftentimes it'll come when you least expect it. Oftentimes from the person you least expect it from. Like I said, it can come from within a family member or somebody in your own house or one of your circle of friends who suddenly turns on you because you're standing on the truth. Folks, when that happens, we should not be surprised because if we are surprised, then we've been caught off guard. And when we're caught off guard, that's exactly when Satan is going to enslave us. He's going to fan the flames of fear, of frustration, hopelessness, despair, you name it. And we don't want that to happen. And that's my worry for the church here in America is that we have been caught off guard to a certain degree. We we haven't been prepared. And now we're all looking going, what's next? And how do we navigate this? Listen, when we as believers anticipate persecution, that's when we'll be able to navigate persecution. And not surprisingly, our passage tells us exactly how to navigate persecution. So let's go back to our passage. Here it is. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. And he tells us exactly what to do when persecution comes knocking at your door. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God is upon you. It rests upon you. That is incredible. So Peter outlines two ways that believers should navigate persecution when it comes knocking on our door. And the first is this. He says, rejoice, rejoice. And the reason believers are able to rejoice is simply this. When Christ returns in glory, you are going to share in that glory. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when he, when his glory is revealed. That's what it says right there. So what's he talking about? Well, here's what he's talking about. When Christ comes back, folks, the Bible says we are going to be glorified. We are going to share in the glory of God. Paul said it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we what? Suffer with him. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you might be sitting here going, I haven't really experienced a lot of persecution. That's good, but you have. If you're a believer, you have experienced some. We all have. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will experience persecution, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. By the way, do you know what the very next verse says in this passage? It says this, verse 18, for I consider that our sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. What God has in store for us makes what we're going through now bearable. Because what is in store for us is incredible. You got a mansion waiting for you. 
in God's house are many rooms. He's got a mansion waiting for you, and it's a glorious mansion. And as my old seminary professor, Dr. Henry Holloman, said, when you get your keys to your mansion and you walk in and you find that I'm cleaning it, be nice to me, okay? Because remember, the greatest among us is not the person in the pulpit. The greatest among us is who? The servant of all. You might be surprised when you find out who's cleaning your castle or your mansion in heaven. But here's the point. When we're persecuted, what your flesh wants to do in that moment is go, woe is me. And you're going to have maybe other people that are going to join in that chorus as woe is us. Folks, far from saying woe is us, the Bible says rejoice in that moment. It's not time for a pity party. It's time to rejoice that you bear the name of Christ. You want a perfect example of people doing this? It's right here. Acts chapter 5. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Well, you know what's going to happen. They're not going to stop talking about Jesus, but they walk out. What do they do? Have a pity party? Do they walk out and go, woe is us? This is the end. The church is being persecuted. What's going to happen? No. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Folks, the world is going to tell you, your flesh is going to tell you when you're persecuted to go, woe is me. Folks, in that, you've got to resist it in that moment and rejoice that you bear the name of Christ. God set your feet and my feet in this generation to be light for him. And when we suffer for him, that means he's got a purpose in it. And you know what that purpose is, by the way? I mentioned it earlier in the passage. He's testing us right? What does our passage say? Let me just read it to you. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you. Many people in the church were were going, oh my gosh, we're being persecuted. What's going on? I'll tell you what's going on. God is refining his church. He's testing it. He's putting it through the fire so that it comes out more beautiful. So that what is bad and worthless is burned off. And just as I said that the truth is being trampled underfoot, that it's so obvious now what's going on, you know, how the truth is being trampled underfoot. But you know what else is going on? Those churches that are faithful and those Christians that are faithful are being clearly distinguished from those that are not. Amen? That's exactly what's happened. God is testing the church. And there is a clear dividing line that is happening in our culture between churches that are remaining faithful, Christians that are remaining faithful, and those that are not. And I'm going to tell you something. That's a great thing. That is a great thing. And I'm reading articles where people are going, well, the church is shrinking and the church is, you know, the church attendance is down. And I'm going, don't panic, don't fear. God's got this. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, when somebody becomes a true believer in Christ, they can't lose their salvation. I believe that. You can't lose your salvation, which means that the true church is never shrinking. (laughs) Now, the visible church, the Protestant reformers made a a difference between the, the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is what you see. That will shrink. But that's not a bad thing. Because sometimes the church needs to be pruned. And that's exactly what God is doing in times of persecution. He's testing the church. And you go, well, why is this person in my life? Why is this person in my family that is persecuting me? He's testing you. Don't be surprised when God does this. Don't get caught off guard. And whatever you do, don't go, woe is me. You rejoice because you bear the name of God. He set your feet in this generation, put his name upon you, and wants you to stand strong for him. So when you're persecuted, you rejoice because there's going to come a day when he is revealed in glory and you are going to be rewarded. Amen? By the way, the way to navigate persecution is to celebrate that you bear the name of Christ. So let's go back to our passage. The second thing he says is this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. 
And by the way, are you being insulted for being a Christian right now? Of course you are, right? We're being called bigots. In any phobic, we're being phobic this, you're phobic that. You Christians are phobic and fearful about everything, right? We're being accused of all sorts of crazy stuff and, and being, you know, uh, intolerant people. So if you are insulted, which you currently are, is currently happening to those of us who believe, for the name of Christ, what do you do when you're insulted? You count yourself blessed. Whatever you do in that moment, don't let the world tell you how to respond. Don't let your flesh tell you how to respond. You respond how the word of God tells you to respond. You count yourself blessed. And here's why. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Why is that important? Here's why it's important. Folks, when you are persecuted, it may look to others that you are standing alone and in a place of weakness. That's exactly what's happening in our culture. I keep reading one article after another. Well, the church is shrinking. You know, the the church is on the out. People don't like the church and it's shrinking as if that's a bad thing. And I'm going, look, it may appear that we are standing alone and in a place of weakness, but what does the Bible say? You count yourself blessed because when you are persecuted in that moment, guess what? The spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in that moment. I would argue that the church is never more strong than when being persecuted because we have the promise that in that moment, God's spirit rests upon us. And when God's spirit is resting upon the church, folks, we are not in a place of weakness. We are in a place of power. You want a great example of this in the scriptures? It's right here. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is about to be stoned, the first martyr. Acts chapter 6 and 7, he preaches this amazing sermon, and then we get to the end. Now listen, you want to know how mad the people in the first century were at Stephen? It says they ground their teeth at him. Have you ever had somebody that mad at you? What does that even mean? I guess it's that, huh? Now, when they heard these things that Stephen had been saying, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. So folks, these people are furious. But what does it say? But he, full of the Holy Spirit. You go, well, Stephen was in a place of weakness. He was about, you know, he he was surrounded by men that wanted to kill him. And I'm going, yeah, they wanted to kill him, but he was never stronger than he is now, filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened? He gazed into heaven and saw what? The glory of God. Remember what the Bible says? Count yourself blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you in that moment when you're being persecuted. It's exactly what's happening here. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Folks, that does not sound like a man that is in a place of weakness. Oh, from a worldly perspective, you can say he's surrounded by people that are persecuting him. But I would argue from a spiritual standpoint, this man is an absolute stud. He's standing in the midst of men that want to kill him and he's preaching the gospel and he's pointing people to Jesus and the Holy Spirit is upon him. And you go, well, he's going to lose his life. Is that a bad thing? Well, you go from a worldly perspective, it is. But folks, I've said it before, folks, there's no greater honor that if you could lay your life down for the Lord, I would love to enter heaven as a martyr. And maybe I will, Lord willing, if he has that for me. But I would love that on my resume for the rest of her eternity. So everything I've said to this point is important, but now I'm going to tell you the most practical thing I'm going to tell you today. And this is so vitally important. Don't miss this, okay? Here it is. Not all types of suffering that the Christian endures is because you bear the name of Christ. And that is because sometimes believers bring suffering upon themselves and trials and difficulties upon themselves through reckless or poor decision-making. And that is exactly why, let's go back to our passage, Peter says this, but let none of you suffer as a murderer 
or as a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. And by the way, do you know what meddler means right there? It means somebody who sticks their nose in everybody else's business, right? And you go, well, I'm not, I don't know that I'm a murderer, thief, and evildoer, but isn't it interesting that it's, it's, it says murderer, thief, evildoer, and somebody who sticks their nose in other people's business? We're all guilty of that, for heaven's sakes, right? I kid you not, I have known Christians who have made reckless decisions in their lives, and when they end up suffering for it, they actually try to make themselves out to be some sort of martyr for Christ. It's like, well, I'm suffering because, you know, I'm just being spiritually attacked right now, and I'm suffering because I did what was right in my heart. No, you're suffering because you're an idiot, (laughs) right? You're suffering because you're being an idiot. You're sowing to the flesh and you're reaping for it, but you're trying to cloak it in, oh, I'm just suffering for Christ. No, if your family is opposed to you because you bear the name of Christ, that's one thing. But if your family is upset with you because you're a jerk, that's an entirely different thing. And if you're suffering because of that, don't think that you're suffering for Christ. You're not. Amen? Because we all know people that have fallen into that category and we probably have ourselves at times where it's like, am I suffering because I'm, I'm doing this for Christ or am I suffering just because I'm, I'm not being kind and loving or gracious or whatever in that moment? And so he says, don't suffer. This world is difficult enough. If you're going to suffer for Christ's name, don't add to it by suffering because you make stupid decisions, okay? If you do, if you bear the name of Christ and are making stupid decisions, there's shame in that. But you know what there's not shame in? Suffering for Christ. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Folks, if you suffer because you're making stupid decisions, don't say I'm suffering because I'm suffering for Christ. You're suffering because you're making bad decisions. Period, end of sentence. But folks, whatever you do, don't let the world, your flesh, or anyone else make you feel ashamed for suffering for Christ. You may be the only one in your family that's standing strong or in your circle of friends or at your place of work or whatever that is standing strong. In that moment, folks, there's no shame in that. There is honor in that. And don't forget that. That's so very important. Ironically, the term Christian, you know, if if somebody goes, oh, you're a Christian, you're one of those people. The Christian was first used as a pejorative, meaning as a swear word. It wasn't meant as something good. It was used in Acts chapter 11 at the church in uh, Antioch. And they were called Christians. And and it wasn't necessarily what, it wouldn't have been an endearing term. It was like, oh, look at those Christians. It would have been uh, a point of, like I said, it would have been a pejorative. It would have been an insult. But Peter's point is, don't be ashamed that you are a Christian. Don't be ashamed that you bear that name, folks. That is what should identify you first and foremost in everything. It is not your occupation. It is not your family. It is not your height or your color of your skin or anything else that identifies you. The first thing and the only thing that should identify you above all things is that you are a Christian. You bear the name of Christ. Amen? Amen. And when you're persecuted, you do exactly what Peter says. What does he say here? Don't be ashamed, but he says, glorify God. Again, your flesh is going to say, woe, is going to tempt you to go, woe is me, and this, that, and the other thing. No, you rejoice and count yourself blessed. And when people slander you and persecute you, you glorify God in that moment. See, the world's going to think if we persecute the church, we win. When ironically, when they persecute us, we win because God is going to use it to refine us. And if we're, if we anticipate the persecution, we'll navigate it right because we will rejoice in that moment. We won't do what the world does. We won't do what our flesh says. We will rejoice and we'll just praise God that he set our feet in the 21st century. He set our feet in this time. I say it all the time. This is one of the craziest times in world history. It has to be. Folks, there's electricity, trains, planes, automobiles, computers, the internet. It's, it's, crazy that the world that we're living in, do you understand that a couple hundred, 150 years ago, there was no electricity. 
Even in this country, we were building a railroad just to get across the country. We hadn't even explored the West yet. That was just, every generation before us lived in that world and before it. You and I are living at a crazy time in world history. Who did God set here? You and me. Are we going to suffer for it? You bet. But what matters is how we respond to it, folks. Whatever we do, whatever you do, if you get nothing from my message, get this. Do not let your flesh or anyone else or the world dictate how you respond. Because if you do, Satan will jump on that and he will enslave you to anxiety and fear and a woe is me attitude and the church is shrinking and what's going to happen. No, the church isn't shrinking. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Folks, you are on the winning team. There will be one kingdom left standing when all is said and done, and it is the kingdom that you and I are a part of. Amen? Amen? So you believe it, and you rejoice that God has set your feet here and that you get to suffer for him. You rejoice in that moment, and you know that in that moment, the spirit of glory of God rests upon me. It may look to the world that the, that the church is in a place of weakness when we know that it is in a place of strength. I do mean that. And I talk to all of you, because of what's been going on in our culture the last five to ten years, Christians, the Christians I know, you guys, we are sharper than ever now because we have to be. Our blades are sharper than ever because we've been driven to the word. And so the, the church is more awake and more sharp than it's ever been. I think in the last maybe 15, 20 years, the church, the true church is alive, folks. And we're standing our, we're standing our ground. We're holding our own. It doesn't matter what the world brings to us. You glorify God. Now, the reason you glorify God in that moment is because the temptation for you and for me when we're being persecuted is to strike back against those who are persecuting us, right? And that's the danger, is the internet allows us to do that. We're being persecuted, so we go to the keyboard and we are shooting venom back at everyone else. What should we do in the face of persecution? Well, the Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, right? So we don't act as the world does. We don't strike back with vengeance and venom. We do exactly what Peter tells us to do in this passage, because let's go back to our passage. This is what he says. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So here's the, here's the point. Do you know that when we as Christians suffer, it is a form of God's judgment upon us? It's been brought into our lives to test us, as Peter said at the beginning of this passage. It is a form of judgment. Now, it is not a judgment unto condemnation, because there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. But it is a judgment unto sanctification. So it's not a judgment unto condemnation, but it is a judgment unto sanctification. Paul said this, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged, because we don't all judge ourselves truly. We're horrible judges of ourselves at times. So when we are horrible judges of ourselves, this God steps in and it says, but when we are judged by the Lord, meaning when he intervenes and he says, listen, you're out of line or you're, you're, you need to grow in this area, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The writer of Hebrews said it this way, God is treating you as sons. For what son is there who the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. What should worry you is if you're not disciplined. If God's judgment of refining fires doesn't come into your life. That's what should concern you. Besides this, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. It is a judgment. It's a judgment unto sanctification. 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful. It is painful when God disciplines us, his church. It's painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Folks, listen, look at that last line, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What the world needs to see in the church right now is not us running around panicked because we're being persecuted or people are spitting venom at us. What they should see is people who are being guarded by the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Amen. They should look at people who know God's in control. And that this testing that has come into our life through persecution, it is, he's just testing us. He's refining us. And you go, they're going to go, but the church is shrinking. No, it's not. But this, that, and the other thing, don't panic. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail again. And don't worry, I'm on the winning team. It may not seem like it at this moment, but I am. And oh, by the way, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon me. So if you think I'm in a place of weakness, you don't know the scriptures. I am stronger than I've ever been. So persecute all you want because I'm going to praise God. And I'm going to glorify him in the name of Christ, because that is what I've been called to do in this generation. My feet, your feet were set in the craziest, one of the craziest times in world history. You understand that. You are not here by accident, folks. Your feet were set here to stand bold for God. When you're persecuted, whatever you do, do not look at it from a worldly perspective or a fleshly perspective. You have to look at it from an eternal biblical perspective. And I don't, I don't have time to mention it, but the great white throne judgment is a reminder um, when Jesus comes back, what he's going to do He's going to separate the sheep and the goat. And, and this is what he says to the sheep. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What does he say to the goats, those that persecuted you and me? He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Folks, you leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Okay? Don't strike pack. Don't act as the world acts when you're persecuted. You bless those who persecute you. You pray for them. What is the last verse in, in the great white throne judgment in, in Matthew 25? It says, and these will go away to eternal punishment. If you got somebody in your life that is clawing at you, gnawing at you, persecuting you in your face, folks, just go, hey, God, I pray for them. I pray that they come to faith. But if they don't know that, God's going to take care of it. He's going to hold them accountable. And you will be rewarded for your faithfulness. See, we only have to do what Peter says. This is how Peter ends this passage. And I just end here. Therefore, let those of us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Folks, just keep serving the Lord in this generation. Keep doing good, even when you're persecuted. Entrust yourself to God. Believe that he knows what he's doing and don't panic. And don't get enslaved to fear or anger or confusion or frustration. That's exactly what the enemy wants. So the real question today is this, are you ready to suffer for Christ if the circumstances get potentially worse? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't. But I do know this is that there may be greater persecution coming our way. If you think it's tough now, it may get a lot tougher. Folks, don't be surprised if that happens. When it does, you count yourself blessed and you respond as God has called you to respond and don't respond as the world or your flesh is telling you. on his 
program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, we've been studying the book of Second Thessalonians, and we have come to that portion in that book in which we were looking at the Antichrist. And we came within that portion to verse 9, where it talks about the power that is behind him. This is in 2 Thessalonians 2.9. The one who's coming, who is in accord with the activity, or literally operative power, of Satan. So I felt it would be good for us, since the Antichrist is empowered and operating by Satan, that we take a look, and this week in a break, and take a look at... Satan. And we're going to see today from Ezekiel 28, the rise and fall of Satan, the power behind the Antichrist. As you turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 19. 
And within that, you may have been here years ago, 14 years, I think, to be exact, when we studied Ezekiel. And so you may remember the context or maybe not, but I'm going to review it for you. As you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the Lord made it clear that if Israel obeyed in the covenant, they would be blessed. If they cursed, they would be disciplined. They would be disciplined if they disobeyed and cursed. And so thus, the Lord laid clearly the things that would happen to Israel if they continued in disobedience, that they would be severely disciplined and expelled from the promised land. And the Lord God reveals through his word that unfortunately, the Israelites continued to disobey year after year. We know that after the kingdoms were divided because of Solomon's sin, we see over time the prophets continuing to warn of the impending doom of God's judgment upon the northern kingdom. And that came about when the Assyrians invaded and took them captive in 722 B.C. We see that in 2 Kings 17. And the same was looming for the southern kingdom. And after God continued to warn the southern kingdom of their sin, that they would turn and repent, we see that the southern kingdom began to be taken into captivity. Now concerning that southern kingdom, it reveals that as they disobeyed, there were three specific sieges and then, in a sense, uh, captivities for the southern kingdom. Three deportations, you could say. First of all, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the rising superpower of the day, took the first set of captives to Babylon, and this included Daniel and his friends. And then the second siege in 597 included Ezekiel and 10,000 captives. And then from 588 to 586 B.C., for 18 months, Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem again, and that siege ended in the total destruction of the temple, the walls of Jerusalem, and the city was torn down, and the majority of Judah was slaughtered, and yet there were some who escaped, as we see, and the others were taken captive. Now, the book of Ezekiel, to understand it, we need to recognize that it is centered around this third and final siege, that 18-month siege, which ended in the ultimate captivity of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. The first 24 chapters are the oracles leading up to the siege, which begin with God on the throne and his glory and majesty, bringing forth ultimately the judgment and discipline in Israel that would come. We see a picture of that in the first chapter. Then in chapters 25 through 32, there are basically prophecies during that 18-month siege. Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon to those who had already been taken captive while Jerusalem is being sieged. And then chapters 33 to 48 are prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem. So Ezekiel is prophesying to a captive people concerning the sins of those who are entering into judgment from the living God. An awful siege in which many were killed and many were brutally taken to Babylon. Yet those who were in Judah were still in grievous sin. They were listening to the evil voices of those False prophets who would say, peace and safety, God's not upset with you. God wouldn't do that to you. He wouldn't judge you. He wouldn't discipline you. And through Ezekiel, then, God in many ways made manifest that his judgment was coming and that they would know that he is the Lord one way or another. You see, he exhorted them over and over again to repent because all souls, chapter 18, are his. And the soul that sins will die and that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they should repent and live. 
But unfortunately, repentance was far from Jerusalem. God's people were to be a light to the nations, but became a wicked example of depravity and idolatry. And we see in chapter 24, we find the 18-month siege of Jerusalem had begun. The siege in which Nebuchadnezzar began to starve and slaughter the inhabitants of the city. That siege, which I've mentioned, would end in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it's at this point we enter into the second portion of the book, the oracles during that siege. And in chapter 25, we have prophecies against the surrounding nations who were mocking and thankful in a wicked way that Israel was going through what they were going through. You see, yes, God does discipline his people, but we're not to rejoice in that. The nations were rejoicing in what God was allowing to happen to Israel. And so we have a tour, in a sense, a clockwise circle of the nations that surround Judah, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia, and the future fate of them for their wickedness. And then we see in chapters 26 and 27, the first portion concerning God's judgment against Tyre. And that was a great city of commerce. And then chapter 28, which we're going to look at today, begins with the judgment on the ruler of Tyre, an incredibly arrogant man who thought he was God, but died as a man and went to eternal torment. And then we come to our passage where we see the power behind the leader of Tyre. And thus, we're going to see the rise and fall of Tyre's ultimate leader, which is Satan. And it's here we see actually the power that is behind and will be behind the Antichrist. So turn again to Ezekiel 28, and we're going to be looking at chapter 28, verses 11 to 19. Now, as I mentioned, chapters 26 through 28 have to do with Tyre, and Tyre was a city. Now, there were two Tyres, not like a motorcycle, but two Tyres. There was one in the mainland, where we call Lebanon now, and there was an island city just offshore built on an island rock. That's the Tyre that we are speaking of. And remember, God said he would destroy it, and it would never be rebuilt again, and it hasn't been. Tyre also had its daughters, in a sense, which were on the mainland, those suburbs of that island city. Now, in this island city, it became a great place of commerce and wealth. And it's clear from chapter 27 that the city of Tyre was an incredibly great and powerful, wealthy city. But because of her pride and her worldly glee over the destruction of Jerusalem, that she could benefit financially, God promised and would eventually destroy that island city. And so in chapter 27, we have the prophecy of the destruction of Tyre. And then in 28, we have the prophecy of the eternal destruction of its leader. And then that morphs into what we will see today, the power behind the leader of Tyre, which is Satan. So let's start back, and I'm going to read from chapter 28, verse 1, and read into our passage. And you're going to see it's talking about the leader of Tyre, and all of a sudden it changes and talks about someone that cannot be a man. And it's talking about the power behind. Chapter 28, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, that's now Ezekiel who's sharing this, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, and sit in the seat of God's in the heart of the seas. Now, you're going to see some parallels between the leader of Tyre and the Antichrist, by the way. you see some there. Uh, Yet you are a man, not God. And although you make your heart like the heart of God, behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you've acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasures. 
By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches, and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have made your heart like the heart of God, therefore, behold, I will bring strangers upon you, the most ruthless of nations, and they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They will bring you down to the pit, and you will die the death of those who are slain in the heart of the seas. Will you still say, I am a God in the presence of your slayer, although you are a man and not God in the hands of those who wound you? You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hands of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord. Now at this point it moves into a prophecy, I believe, against the power behind the king of Tyre. Notice what it says. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, this is our passage, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, and the barrel, and the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald. And the gold and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, and I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you, and it has consumed you. And you have turned to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. And all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified and you will be no more. And so here we have God's account, not man's. Man takes this and twists this in his wickedness. But God's account of, as we're going to see, the rise and fall of Satan. And we're going to see Lucifer's sinless beginning, his grand privileges, then his sinful fall and his eternal fate. Now, before we begin, I need to make it clear our desire is not to proclaim Satan here, but to proclaim Christ. But we want to understand what God reveals about our enemy. And for those of you who think about spiritual warfare and things like that, remember the reality is if you're not saved, you are in the domain of darkness, whether you understand it or not. You're in Satan's domain, and it's only through repentance that you'll come forth and be set free, having been held captive to do his will. Now, let me remind you that the Lord God, through Christ, is the only one who can save you, who can deliver you from that domain of darkness. When Jesus came to Saul of Tarshish on the Damascus Road, he shared what he would be doing through, ultimately, his renamed Paul. And he shares this, and Paul reshares this in Acts 26, verse 18, he And Jesus states, he is sending Paul to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, 
in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. Colossians 1.12, For he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the reality is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we need not fear Satan, but we need to understand our enemy and what God shares about our enemy. Remember, Satan needed permission to shake up Peter. Luke chapter 22, Jesus relays to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like weak, to shake you up. And what did Jesus say? But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It's a faith issue. And so here we see the reality that Satan needs permission. We see that in the book of Job. That Satan, although he is, as we'll see, the most powerful created being, he needs permission to do what he does. He is still underneath God's sovereign hand, although he has completely rebelled. Remember, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So let's go to our passage and let's look at the spiritual force behind the wickedness in this world and thus the Antichrist. Notice his sinless beginning, verse 11. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, and the jasper, and the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now, initially it says, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre. Well, ultimately you're going to see it's morphing into the power that's behind that wicked king who thought he was God, because as you can see here, this can't be speaking of a man. The only blameless man there ever was was Adam, and he sinned. There's never been a blameless man in that sense from that creation. We see also here that he was perfect and blameless, but also being in Eden, the very garden of God. King of Tyre wasn't in Eden, the garden of God, okay? We also see later on that he is a covering cherub. Folks, that's an angel. That's Satan. That's the type of angel that he is. He's a cherub. We see them, they're called cherubim. And so there's no validity for those to say this is speaking merely of a man. It transitions, as the scriptures do at times, from one thing to what is behind that thing. And that's what's happening here. And we gain information about our enemy here. And some of the things we're going to see here as we look at this is that we understand from his nature how he tries to deceive us. We also understand his fall and that God cannot be blamed for evil. And we also understand that he will be destroyed eternally in the lake of fire. We understand his end. And we need to know that. We need to remember that. Paul had to encourage the Romans in light of the bad guys that were trying to mess them up in chapter 16. And he shares, soon God will crush Satan at your feet. We need to remember that because, yes, he is active and temptation is strong And there is a world that is controlled by the God of this world, Satan. But those things will end, and we need to understand that. And so here, let's take a look at his sinless beginning. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation against the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
It talks about a little at the end of verse 13, on the day you were created. And then look down verse 15, and you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created. Satan is not a sovereign God. He is a created being. He is a created being, and God is the one who created everything. We see in Scripture, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things came into being, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being. Colossians 1.16, For by Him, speaking of Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Now, we notice from our passage that when he was created on that day, he was created in perfection. He was perfect. Thus says the Lord God, you had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. The seal of perfection. What does that mean here? Well, I think the parallel statement helps out. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Hebrew language uses parallelism to strengthen and help us understand concepts. Satan was perfect in the sense that he was full of wisdom and perfectly beautiful. Very interesting. In Satan's original created form, he was perfect in beauty and had the fullness of wisdom. Now we know in Christ all the fullness of wisdom and deity dwells, right? We know that. But God gave Satan this. He gave them this when he was created. He was full of wisdom. That speaks of abundant wisdom. And we know that came from his creator, as I mentioned, the Lord. Now notice also the text goes further to describe where he was, that he was in Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. The term Eden means delight. The term garden simply means an enclosure. We know it was a delightful enclosure until sin entered in, didn't we? And Satan the tempter, right? It was made for man, for Adam and Eve. And something interesting to ponder is before the creation, there was no fall. And then even during the creation, there was no fall until it was done. We know in Job 38 that the morning stars, this is speaking of angels, and all the sons of God, that speaks of angels, shouted for joy. And I'll read this later. They shouted for joy at the creation that God had made. Satan hadn't fallen yet. He fell after the creation of the heavens and the earth. And so we also see that before his fall, he was in the garden of God. Before his fall, he was in the garden. And then we see also later on in the garden, there were cherubim there also. Remember, after Adam and Eve fell, God sent cherubim of glory to guard the garden. There's angels involved. There were angels in the garden. Now, before his fall, he was in the garden. But we know in Genesis 3 that he had fallen, and we'll see in other places his fall. And we see him in the garden also as the serpent later on, the crafty, clever one in the garden. Now notice back in our passage in verse 13, he was covered with jewels. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald. Satan before his fall was clothed with every precious stone. Well, what do we know about precious stones? Why are they beautiful? Is a precious stone beautiful in darkness? No. Precious stones are only beautiful because they reflect light in a beautiful way. 
And so we have this one, as we're going to see, who was a light bearer or a light reflector in a sense. We know from Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, that he's called the star of the morning, literally in Hebrew. Now, there's other people that twist this in their wicked theology, but it literally means shining one, means light bearer, Lucifer, light bearer. Star of the morning, shining one, and then he's called Lucifer, which means light bearer. So Satan, before his fall, originally reflected, as we're going to see, the light and glory of the perfect God in a beautiful way. We see in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that Christ is going to illumine heaven, the Lamb will, right? And we're going to reflect his glory forever and ever for what he's done for us in his son Jesus. We reflect the glory of Christ. So Satan, before he fell, originally reflected, as we're going to see, the light of God's glory in a beautiful way. And then notice this. He was created to praise God in song. Look at the end of verse 13. And the gold... The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. Now, this is a difficult portion to translate, but the terms settings spoke of really a timbrel or a tambourine. Your, your NASB probably doesn't translate the best, but they say, or tambourine there. You'll see that. And then the term sockets really spoke of groove or a hole, which spoke of like a flute in a sense. Yeah. 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.